Uh, okay, I guess I'm positioned correctly now. <laughs> It'd be good if I had this right side up, though. Let me have a quick prayer as well. Gracious God, I do thank you for this opportunity to be here today with all of these wonderful people, people that serve you, Lord. And we do pray that the words of my mouth will be that which you want these people to hear. And if any need to hear your saving grace, let them hear it this morning. Thank you for all of the ministries that go on here in this place. And we thank you for Bill and Kristen as they continue to minister to all of you. We ask your grace on us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read, as you can see, or perhaps, yes, it's still up there, um, from a couple different versions of uh, Scripture. And so the first Scripture is Matthew 5, 13 through 6, 16, rather, <laughs> and it is from the um, Living Bible. You are the world's seasoning to make it tolerable. If you lose your flavor, what will happen to the world? And if you yourselves will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the world's light, a city on a hill, glowing for, in the night for all the world to see. Don't hide your light. Let it shine for all, that they might see your good deeds and so that they will praise your heavenly Father. The next scripture is Matthew eleven twenty five through 28. And this is rest for all who are tired. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. You are Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and educated people, but you have shown them to the little children. Yes, Father, this is what you wanted to do. My Father has given all things to me. The Father is the only one who knows the Son, and the only one who knows, the, only the ones who know the Father are the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to make him known. Come to me, said Jesus, all you who are tired and are carrying heavy loads. I will give you rest. And in Matthew 19, 13 through 15, and this is in the NRV, NIV uh, version, little children are brought to Jesus. Some people brought little children to Jesus. They wanted him to place hands on the children and pray for them. But the disciples told them not to do it. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't keep them away. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like them. Jesus placed his hands on them to bless them, and then he went on his way. We are all little children in God's eyes. We are God's children. And I know that some of you may be thinking, oh, no, i got to sit through another story from a pastor who was raised in a Christian home and had, oh, maybe some minor difficulties in their life. But I ask you to hang on with me just for a little while as I share my story with you. You see, my earliest memory was of my natural mother walking out on my father and all of her nine children. 
I was too young to understand why she was leaving, and I remember crying for her not to go, and my natural father yelling at one of my sisters to shut me up. Well, she was leaving with another man, and he was a man I never liked. I didn't know why, but I didn't, and I was only about five at the time. What happened then was our father, who drank a lot, he began to drink more. He began, or probably continued, and I just hadn't noticed at that age, abusing our brothers with anything he could lay his hands on. A stick, a pipe, it didn't matter. He also abused my sisters in ways that no father should abuse or use his daughters. Well, he was an itinerant farm worker, and if he wasn't drinking in some field somewhere, he was working in the fields or in the barns. And from some unknown source, he found out the welfare was looking for us. Apparently, my mother had notified them that he was there with all nine of us children, and he was abusive. So they were trying to find us. Well, we moved so many times during the night. I can remember being loaded in somebody's car, it certainly wasn't ours, and taken to a new place to, li to live in the middle of the night. The places we lived were not very nice. One of those places was a couple of rooms added on to a chicken coop. The girls slept on these coil springs with a quilt that was thrown over them and another quilt that was on top of us. And one night we woke up with these terrible noises and when I sat up I was very scared because there was a big white rat coming through the floorboard. Our brothers had to get it back underneath the house and nail up that board. And my sisters told me I had to be very quiet so they could do what they needed to do. Believe me, I was. It was scary. Sometimes our father would drink all of the money he earned away, and we would need food. And one time I remember he took me to this little store, and he asked the grocer for some credit to buy his children food. The grocer said, I'm sorry, I can't lend you any more credit. So he said, okay, stand in front of me. We're going to go out the back door. So, you know, I did what I was told. And then he grabs a box of Rice Krispies off the shelf. And he says, hide this under your coat, which I did. I was only five. But that night, all of us children had Rice Krispies and water for our supper, and we had the same thing the next morning. Sometime later, an aunt came by and noticed that there wasn't any food in the house, and my father was nowhere to be found because, we learned later, he was 
passed out somewhere. So she taught us how to go through people's garbage cans to get food, scraps of food that they didn't think was worthy to eat and threw away, much like homeless people do today. She also taught us how to beg for bread at people's houses. But that night, when we got all of our treasures home, and that aunt cooked a meal of potato skins for us, they were the best potato skins I had ever tasted in my life. And I still like potato skins. <laughs> well, after running for about a, a year, we moved to this farmhouse that had an upper apartment. And so we were all up there, and my brothers had been taught how to hunt. And so they were getting ready to go hunting, and they had their cartridges out. And they warned me, don't ever play with those cartridges. They're dangerous. Well, I was a kid. They had left an empty cartridge on the floor. It was one of those metal kind. And so I was playing with it. And then I was told it was time to go to bed, and I remember sitting it up on the bottom of the wood stove, on that little part that goes around the wood stove at the base of the old-fashioned kind. So the house caught on fire that night. And it was not until I was adult that I realized I was not the cause of that house fire. It was a chimney fire. But I carried that with me, that guilt about that fire, into my 30s. The same night, the welfare finally caught up with us. So we were all taken to the Randolph Children's Home, and we were divided up in these little groups. With nine kids, nobody's going to take nine kids. But that was not something I could understand, nor could my younger brother or little sister. We had just lost our mother, lost our father, and now we were being separated. It was horrendous. It was the, the most heartache I ever could have imagined. Well, my little brother and sister and I went to our first foster home. And we were there just a few months before my youngest sister died of pneumonia. Again, I never knew the cause of her death, and I thought it was because I could not take good enough care of her. It was my responsibility as the oldest sibling in that group. So my younger brother and I were sent to another foster home. In that foster home, the mother had an illness, and very soon we were moved from there. But then we went to live on a farm, and we didn't stay there long either. I think it was really the policy of the welfare service at the time not to let foster children stay too long so they wouldn't become connected to the people. But I didn't understand that. I thought it was because nobody loved us. When we moved again, it was into a home of a Nazarene minister and his wife. And I remember they were very strict. But that was when I accepted Jesus as a little girl. And we lived there for three years. Then my natural mother married my stepfather. And she wanted us to come home. We were the youngest. 
And so she wanted us with her. Welfare checked them out, said everything was okay, and so we went to live with them. But from the very first day I was there, my stepfather did things to me that no father should ever do. And when I talked to my mother about it and asked why he did this, she told me it was so that she would get money to buy us food and clothes. The day came when I was old enough to run away. My brother had actually learned how to hunt as well, and one night he took the gun and pointed it at my stepfather and told him to leave me alone. But I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I ran down to the hill to the constable's house, and he took me to a neighbor's house, and they were wonderful people. They were some of my best friends, the girls. But I knew that they could not keep me because, first of all, they were afraid of my stepfather, and second of all, they had plenty of children of their own. Then I remembered something that the principal had said, and he told me that principal didn't just mean he was the one that ran the school, it was also the P-A-L at the end of principal. He was our pal. If ever we needed to talk to him, we could do that. So at school the next day, I went to the office and said I needed to talk to the principal. Now, I was about 13 at the time. I was very nervous. But the, the secretary just said, well, you're going to have to write everything down that you want to tell the principal, and then we'll see if he has time for you. So I did, and I went to class. I waited all day, it seemed like, and finally, very close to the end of the day, I was called to the principal's office. And he asked me to tell him what I had said in the note. I think he wanted to know if I was going to tell the same stuff again, exactly. And I was very nervous sitting there before him. I mean, you know, he was the principal. But as I started talking, it just all spilled out. And finally, he said, okay, have you heard enough? And I'm, I was speaking. Why is he asking me if I heard enough? But from the other room, a woman came out, and she was my caseworker. And she said, yes, I will take her and get all of her clothing right now. And she'll go back into foster care. Well, I prayed and prayed, excuse me, because I knew that Jesus was supposed to hear my prayers, that God was supposed to hear my prayers, but why was all this happening to me? It just didn't make sense to me. I felt worthless. I felt like a dirty rug under someone's feet. My mother was being beaten, of course, and my brother decided he was going to stay to protect her. People that I had known um, almost as long as I had been at my stepfather's house came to where I was staying and took me to dinner one night and asked me if I would like to come and live with them. They didn't have any children. And I said, yes, they had a camp, and we'd love to go over to their camp. So I said, certainly. So my case went to family court, 
And of course, I was there. And the judge asked my mother, why didn't you leave with your children? And she said, I would rather have a roof over my own head than take care of this brat, meaning me. So she awarded guardianship, and the people that became my guardians, I call my parents. We lost my father many years ago, but my mom still lives in Lakewood in the house that they took me into. I began ninth grade at Southwestern. We lived right next to the old United Methodist Church. Many people thought that was the parsonage, but unfortunately it was far from a parsonage. And they didn't believe in going to church, and so neither did I. Well, after high school, I decided to run away with a man that I thought really loved me. He was unfaithful, and while he had to have the best of everything, I soon learned he was just a user. For instance, for Christmas one year, I got a can opener, but he had to have the required $200 suit. This was back in the 70s. Then he started going to bars with clients for meetings on business and staying out to all hours. First time I found out what was really going on, I forgave him because he said, if I stayed, he would marry me. So I stayed. It wasn't long after that that I found out even though we were married, he was still not being faithful to me. I had put up with his wayward ways long enough and decided I was going to get a divorce, which I did. I called my parents and told them. And then I moved home in September of 1974. When I was still young, I had prayed to God and asked why I was being treated this way. He gave me my first vision then. It was if I floated over a battlefield and I could see soldiers shooting at each other. And I heard a voice. People do what they want to do. I can't make them do what I want them to do. They have to make up their own minds to follow me. Then one time I asked God when I would find the person who would really love me for me, not the way other men had loved me. He gave me another vision, and that was of me at my school reunion. And there I met this guy named David. I knew he was the one that God wanted for me the one that would love me. But I felt like that vision wasn't going to happen. So I forgot all about it and decided my life wasn't worth living. And I took everything I could find in the medicine cabinet. I saw myself laying on the bed. And then someone was guiding me across this footbridge. And I was very afraid. And another person said, don't be afraid, don't look down. And at the other end of that bridge, I saw the most beautiful, wonderful light, and I heard a voice. I wanted to stay there forever, but that voice said to me, you cannot stay. Your work is not yet done. So I was back in my body, and I was sick as a dog but I was alive. 
After I'd been divorced and moved home again, I went on a blind date and was introduced to this guy, David. <laughs> He'd been in the Air Force, and they called each other by nicknames, so Davidson was shortened to David. Well, it stuck with him, and when he was released from the service, he came home in July of 1974 and worked at Blackstone, and there he met the husband of my best friend from high school. They set us up on a blind date. The date ended with breakfast in their home, and Randy and I wanted to talk to each other. We just felt this connection, but I wasn't thinking about that vision at the time. But we knew we needed to know more about each other, so we went outside in their driveway on that very cold but starlit November 9th, November 15th, I'll never forget it, and we talked to each other. And we told each other about our lives and about everything we wanted and about things that had happened to us that we never wanted to happen, have happen again. And God was right there with us, even if we weren't acknowledging that yet. My mom wanted us to have this really great wedding, and we didn't want a big wedding, you know. So we just wanted a family affair, and we decided to move up the date. So we got married January 10th of 75 after knowing each other only two months. But we both knew that we were the person that God had chosen for us. We attended church and tried to live the way we thought we should. And I became pregnant right after we were married. Then I got toxemia and I had to stay flat in bed and the doctor told me one day, you might as well get used to it. You're going to lose this baby. I was devastated. It was horrible to hear the doctor, and he seemed so callous about it. I went home and cried and cried and cried. But God gave me another vision. He gave me a vision of Randy holding flowers, of balloons on a wheelchair and me sitting there holding our newborn baby. I held on to that vision. I never let it go. But because of the toxemia and other difficulties, I started having contractions six weeks early. Well, I figured they're just Braxton Hicks and Randy wasn't home and I wasn't going to worry about it. He was a little upset that I didn't call him home, but, you know, we went to sleep because they would ebb and flow. But then in the middle of the night, they got very difficult. And so to the hospital we went. And the nurse said, oh, you know, this is your first. It's going to take a long time. And I said to her, it's coming. She looked, oh yes, and she started rushing me to delivery. Randy was allowed to come in with us because we had taken the, the Lamaze classes. What I didn't see that Randy did was that our first child, Laura, was stillborn. And the doctors and nurses thought that that was the only baby. But then one of the nurses heard a heartbeat. 
and that was our daughter, Kimberly. And she was born six weeks early. And I had to stay in the hospital a couple weeks, and she had to stay in longer than I. And I got tired of going to the hospital every three times a day, which was all they would allow us to feed her, because she had to be cavaged the rest of the time. She wasn't strong enough. And it would take a half an hour for her to drink one ounce. But I'd, I'd had it. I'm, I'm at home, basically still recovering, but not doing anything. Randy had gotten laid off, so he was home. So I went in. I packed a bag for the baby. I didn't bring it into the hospital because Randy said, now, honey, don't bring it in yet. <laughs> but I had it packed. And I was determined we were going to bring Kimberly home. So I said, I want to speak to Dr. Furlong as soon as he comes in. And I told him what we wanted. And he says, well, now, now, why don't you go home and, and you can pack a bag. And if I think she's well enough to go home, maybe, you know, maybe you can. I said, the bag's already packed. It's in the car. So he says, well, you know, you're going to have to feed her every two hours, don't you? I said, yes, we do. And Randy will help me. So we took Kimberly home that day. God is always right. <laughs> well, three years later, well, I should say Kimberly grew to be a wonderful daughter and her husband is Peyton and we have three wonderful grandsons. But three years later, our daughter Jessica was born and she was born with an adventurous spirit, I'll call it. She was two years old, climbing up a, at least a 10-foot ladder on the outside of the house to get to see what Dad was doing up on the roof. You know, it's like, um, or one time she all of a sudden disappeared from the yard and we were searching all over the neighbors and everything and all of a sudden I looked down and there she was sitting on this brick wall with, I could just see her as I was getting closer to her. She's swinging her feet and she's walking or watching the traffic go by. This was on down by where Montagnes is on like 62, you know. I mean, this is not a safe place for a two-year-old. <sighs> but anyways, she grew to be a wonderful daughter as well and has a husband, Tom, and our granddaughter. Well, when the girls were not yet teens... PTSD kicked in really hard for me. And Randy loved to enjoy roughhousing with the girls, as, you know, any father does. And it just threw me for a loop. It was probably more traumatic for Randy than anything else because he had to get me out of the closet I was hiding in and try to get me to tell him what was wrong. And I couldn't. I could hardly talk. And I knew that I had to deal with the events that had happened in my childhood. So I had to do that. I had to get counseling. And I was working full-time at Zare. I was the operations manager. And then when Zare was sold to Ames, I continued to work for them. But they wanted me to travel. I had two little girls at home. I wasn't going to travel anywhere. So I became an internal auditor. And then they closed, too. So I became a dislocated worker, and I went to JCC. The good news of that was that 
the, the, well, the social services, whatever program that was for dislocated workers, paid for my JCC. So all I had to do was pay for my books. Then I got a call from uh, my advisor at JCC after I had completed the class and um, thought I was going to be working in a nursing home or in a retirement home, and she said, bye, I have the perfect referral for you. It's the Agnes Home. I don't know if any of you are aware of what the Agnes Home is, but the Agnes Home is a shelter. And I had no clue. I had searched everywhere. After all, I knew how to do that. I was the operations manager. I couldn't find out anything other than they had 12 beds. So I went to the interview. And the minute I walked in, I realized that this was a group of ladies and their children who had been abused. The director, when she interviewed me, she said, Vi, can you tell me what made you come here? And I said, the only thing I can tell you is that it must be where God wants me because I had no clue it was a domestic violence shelter. And she said, you're sure of that? I said, yes, I am. You're hired. That was my interview. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so... God put me there to learn about the cycle of violence and to help others to get out of that cycle. But it was also to help me heal and to learn to be able to forgive those who hurt me. It took a long time. It didn't happen overnight. Because I had a lot of shame and sin of my own making, and I still didn't feel worthy of God's love. One night I saw the cross on the hill where Jesus died in a vision. And I knew that I had to walk up that hill. That's why I asked Brandon to find a cross on a hill. I had to walk up that hill, and it was not an easy climb because I was very nervous about doing that. You might even say I was scared. But I did. And the wind was blowing a little, and I could hear something banging against the cross on the other side. And as I walked around that cross, I saw a sign hanging there, and it said, Jesus died for you, too. And that means Jesus died for every one of you, for all people. And we just need to accept him as our Savior. John 3, 16 through 18, in the New Living Translation says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And at that moment, this passage was true. It just said everything to me. I was able to lay a body bag down at the foot of the cross, all my sin, all my shame, I left at that cross. I was meditating 
on Jesus during this time. And I had a vision of a stairway. At the bottom of this stairway was a steel door. And I was afraid to go in front of that door. I didn't want to go there at all. But I knew I was supposed to go up those stairs. So I had to go in front of that door. It took me several weeks, but I finally got the courage to walk over to that hallway. And as I got to that door, it swung open. But when I looked inside, it was empty. All my demons from my past were gone. God had taken them away. They would not haunt me anymore. So I ran up those stairs, and I opened the door, and it was the door that led to Jesus. And he was sitting there with his hand outstretched to me. And I crawled up on his lap, and I became like a little girl again. And I cried out all that pain from my childhood. That was some of the most peaceful times in my life. Then I began to work as a Christian education coordinator for my church. I loved working there and felt this is where God had called me to be. However, my pastor, Jerry Ward, decided that he knew better, and he kept putting local pastor's licensing school brochures on my desk. No, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go along with that. I ignored it for a long time. You see, I still hadn't forgiven myself for my own sins. I thought I had, but you know how they come back and haunt you? I couldn't let them go, it seemed. So I didn't feel worthy of becoming a pastor. God blessed me with another vision during a Koinonia spiritual retreat. And in that vision, I saw a wall of water coming at me. And you have to know that since I almost drowned at a very young age in Lake Erie and was resuscitated on the beach, I don't like water. But all of a sudden, it was like a plexiglass shell just came over me, and I was protected. And when the water receded, I saw all these people out in the water trying to get to shore, and I saw a rowboat with a hole in the bottom and a rusty coffee can. And I knew that I had to take that out and try to rescue people. So I did. God was calling me to follow him and to help people know how much he loves them. So I finally answered God's call at about 50. And I said to God, I need you to help me explain to Randy that you have called me to be a pastor. That was never a conversation we'd ever had. But when I got home, because, you know, when you do Koinonia, the man goes first, and two weeks later, the woman goes. And he said to me, I told him, I said, Randy, I have something I have to tell you. And I knew I had to do it right then and there. And I told him that God was calling me to be a pastor. 
and I expected not the reply he gave me. He said, I know. And I kind of just looked at him. Did he hear me? You know. But he said, God gave me a dream last night. And he said, God showed me that I needed to protect you. So I knew he had something he wanted you to do. So that's my story. I became a pastor. And I enjoy being a retired pastor because I can come and share my story with all of you as well. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to work in the hearts and the minds of people here this day. If they are hurting, let them know that you are there for them. If they need you, Lord, let them know that you are with them. Let them know that you are the chain breaker. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, give Pastor Vi a hand and praise God for...